Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, here with another episode in this month's special series on women of mythology. As if my whole podcast isn't mostly a special series on women of mythology, but this month it's explicit. Well, I put out a Twitter poll for what play to cover this month because, frankly, I think plays like Sophocles' Antigone are a little overdone. I will get to that play eventually, but in the meantime, there are just so many other stories of strong women of mythology that are told half as much, if not far less, than Antigone. We're going to give those ones a voice first, especially because in this case, the play is essentially Euripides' retelling of the same story covered in the more famous Antigone. Because we are starting today with the winner of the Twitter poll and the one I wanted to win anyway, Euripides' play, The Phoenician Women. One that I hadn't even read before this episode because, frankly, it goes really under the radar of Greek tragedy. Of course, we have so many more of Euripides' plays than Sophocles or Aeschylus, so it's so often that his are kind of underrepresented or people just stick to the certain few, like the Bacchae and Medea. But he also wrote about so, so many other women. Like Jocasta. Last week, I began the episode on the women of mythology wronged by their storytellers with Jocasta and how she is known primarily for a story where she is merely a side player in what is truly her own tragedy. 
That's because of Sophocles, whose play Oedipus Tyrannos is by far the most famous and well-known story of Oedipus and Jocasta. It's where Freud got his complex nonsense. It's the story most non-classics nerds even know about. It's the play you often have to read in high school. The inspiration for this episode, and last week's as well, came from reading Jocasta's entry in Natalie Haynes's recent book, Pandora's Jar, because quite honestly, I didn't even know the content of this play before reading Pandora's Jar. But as I should have known, our favorite badass playwright who loved giving women voices and stories and agency, Euripides, also wrote about the badass queen of Thebes wife and, yes, mother of Oedipus, Jocasta. Just a note in today's story, and more broadly, I use the term woman a lot. In this case, it's a lot to do with having children. But as usual, I want to make the stance clear that I recognize that that absolutely does not define a woman, and those who identify as women are absolutely counted in my use of the term. If you identify in any way as a woman, then you're in the word when I'm saying it. The Phoenician women is named for the chorus. Technically, the play is called Phoenici, women of Phoenicia, who comment on the actions of the play. Choruses always served a role like this, but they certainly weren't always women, though Euripides often used them. These Phoenician women came to Thebes as so-called gifts for Apollo's oracle in Delphi, chosen from the women in their town. But they haven't made it to the oracle yet. They're stuck in Thebes. The key piece in choosing these Phoenician women as the chorus is that not only are they not native to Thebes, they're from the east, foreigners, beyond the Greek world, but technically from the homeland of the city of Thebes founder Cadmus, which serves to link them to the story in a really separate but meaningful way. The Phoenician Women was first performed at the Great Dionysia Festival in Athens between 409 and 411. Everyone says a different date. And according to some, it was presented by Euripides alongside plays called Hypsipyle and Antiope. Hypsipyle being the woman Jason was an asshole to before he was an asshole to Medea. And Antiope is an Amazonian queen. What I would not give to travel back in time and view that trilogy of works by Euripides. My heart aches. The Phoenician women begins shortly after Sophocles left off with his story. Sort of. You see, Laius is dead, the Sphinx is dead, Oedipus and Jocasta have been married, they've learned the truth of their lives, and Oedipus has blinded himself. But where Jocasta dies by suicide in Sophocles' play, offstage and with little to no fanfare at all, Jocasta remains very much alive in the Phoenician women and very much still the queen of Thebes. Where Jocasta is a fairly minor character in Sophocles' much more famous play, Oedipus Tyrannos, she is the star of Euripides' play. In fact, she begins the performance with a speech. This is episode 116, Jocasta Beyond Oedipus, 
Euripides, the Phoenician Women, Part 1. Jocasta's speech begins the play by giving those in the audience, and so you too, my listeners, a quick rundown of what's happened in this Euripides' telling of the story. She begins by introducing herself, where she makes clear that she is a blood descendant of Cadmus, the founder of Thebes, not just her first husband, Laius, and therefore her children, but she too has the blood of the founder. She and Laius were married and childless for a long time, she begins. This, we can assume, means she entered the marriage quite young. This would be fairly standard at the time and generally understood, given she married Oedipus after, but still, the point is made in her words. They were married and childless, and finally Laius sought the oracle's advice. He was told they should not have children at all, that the child would kill him, and that, quote, your whole house will wade in its own blood. But Laius got drunk, we're told, and thus, she was pregnant. Of course, it's not explicit and never would be as they were married, but I take this to mean he assaulted her, as presumably after hearing that from the oracle, she also thought it was a pretty bad idea for them to have a child. Regardless, this is how she gives birth to Oedipus, the result of an act Laius immediately regrets, and so he has the child's feet pinned together and orders him to be abandoned in the wilderness, to be exposed. The name Oedipus can be interpreted as swollen foot. Jocasta continues with her story, the details of which are nearly the same as Sophocles, which I told you so very early on the podcast. Oedipus is brought to Corinth, where he's raised by the king and queen, though in Euripides, we wonder, did the king know the child wasn't his? Or, as Natalie Haynes presents in Pandora's Jar, did he not see enough of his wife to notice that she had not, in fact, actually gotten pregnant? Oedipus is raised in Corinth and eventually goes in search of answers. He had heard rumors, or may have guessed, that his parents in Corinth were adoptive. On the road to the Oracle, he met Laius, where, once more, road rage ensued and Oedipus killed Laius, the man he did not yet know was his biological father. In this version, Oedipus never makes it to the Oracle to hear that he will kill his father and marry his mother. It's left unsaid. Oedipus then meets with the Sphinx, the creature menacing Thebes, which Creon, Jocasta's brother, and therefore, I guess, the one in quote-unquote control of her after her husband has been killed, Creon has decreed that whoever defeated the Sphinx would get to marry Jocasta and therefore become the new king of Thebes. Oedipus was the one to answer the Sphinx's riddle, thus defeating it and getting to marry Jocasta. Together they had four children, two sons, Ateocles and Polynices, and two daughters, Antigone and Ismene. I rush through this part because, well, it's just the first speech of the play, but also it remains as Sophocles told it, for the most part, and there are two early episodes of this podcast covering Sophocles' version. All the while, Jocasta proclaims, neither of them knew the truth. That Jocasta was his mother and his wife, and Oedipus her son and her husband. Thus, the tragedy. Oedipus learned the truth, and in his shame, blinded himself with pins. And now we diverge quite notably from Sophocles. 
When her sons were grown, Jocasta explains to the audience, they determined to shut Oedipus up in the depths of the palace, locking him away from the world, and therefore locking away the shame of him. She, meanwhile, retained her place in Thebes as respected royalty, as the queen of Thebes, as the mother of sons who would lead the city. Which is where she now finds herself. There was no clear heir between the two sons, Ateocles and Polynices, and they determined that if they both remained there in the city, there would surely be trouble in Thebes, as their somewhat cursed family had shown. So they came up with a compromise. The brothers would, in essence, take turns. First, Ateocles would rule and Polynices would go into self-imposed exile. He moved to Argos, where he married an Argive woman. But at the end of a year, when they were meant to swap places, Ateocles refused to give up the throne. Thus, the potential war they now find themselves in. Polynices has returned to Thebes with an Argive force and is waging war against the seven gates of the city. Of course, Aeschylus told the story of this war in his work, Seven Against Thebes. Jocasta, though, is the one telling us all of this, and as a mother... All she wants is for her two sons to stop their battle, to stop trying to kill one another. She wants her family reunited and peace between her children. She's proposed a truce so they can speak to one another, and she awaits a messenger with the news. It's Antigone who we meet next, Jocasta having returned to the palace. Antigone and an old enslaved man, her teacher, search for the highest roof in the city from which to view the Argive army that Polynices has brought with him, to wage war on his own city, his brother, and by extension, the rest of his family. Antigone's teacher is well-versed in the army brought by Polynices, and explains to Antigone who everyone is, because it seems it's he who brought the message of truce to Polynices. They watch the army, and eventually Antigone spots her brother. Even though he's about to wage war on her city and her family, she wants to run and hug him. The complexity of their situation is recognized, that neither is explicitly in the wrong or the right, Polynices has been denied his birthright and the agreement he came to with his brother, and this is what he feels is the only solution. Antigone, meanwhile, recognizes the tragedy of it all. Her teacher reminds Antigone that there is still hope, that Polynices will be meeting with his brother, Ateocles, to speak under this truce. The pair continue watching the Argive troops, speaking of who they see, who her teacher recognizes. Finally, speaking of another Argive man, Capaneus, who Antigone has said insulted the people of Thebes, she voices some strong feelings. Quote, Nemesis and loud roaring thunder of Zeus and fiery bolt of lightning beat down his overbearing arrogance. Then, she speaks of his threat to the Theban women, that he would bring them all back to Mycenae enslaved. She finishes, quote, Never, goddess Artemis, golden-haired daughter of Zeus, 
Never let me suffer such bondage. With that, her teacher directs Antigone back into her room. She'd bent the rules, though Jocasta allowed it, by leaving the palace and climbing up to watch the Argive troops beyond the city walls. And, for no reason at all, her teacher ends their chat with a horrible comment directed at the women of the chorus, who will enter as they leave. The translation I'm quoting from proposes that it might be a bow to the Eteocles of Aeschylus, who acted similarly, because her teacher ends his lines, quote, Women take a perverse pleasure in having nothing good to say about each other. With the arrival of the chorus, once their own story is told, that of being en route to the oracle enslaved, caught in Thebes by the war, Polynices arrives under the truce. That these Phoenician women share blood with Polynices and the royal house of Thebes is made very clear. Polynices arrives, but he's untrusting. He's not certain his brother and the Thebans will hold up their end of the bargain. But he's there all the same. The chorus announces this to Jocasta, calling to his mother within the palace, calling out to her to greet her son with loving arms. Women of the chorus using matriarchal language, calling to Jocasta, not Eteocles, to come out and greet Polynices. Jocasta is the lead here, but she also appears to be treated as a leader of Thebes itself, as certainly one of its most respected citizens. When Jocasta greets her son, we're once more treated to explicit mothering. She's so happy to see him, talks of how he's been missed this whole time by the people of Thebes, if not by his brother, Eteocles. She hugs him, she's affectionate and loving. Jocasta gets not only to be the lead character of this play, a strong woman who's clearly very important to the city of Thebes, but she gets to have a traditional, quote-unquote, woman's role. She's a traditional woman of ancient Greece, her primary role in society being that of a caring mother, and she gets to be a strong queen of Thebes. She speaks of Oedipus, too, though just to say that he's still locked away, ashamed of what he's done to his children, longing for his own death. That is to say, her husband is a side character, shut away and ashamed always. The man whose story is the much more famous one traditionally. He's a bit of an afterthought. This is all about Jocasta. She is very clear. She just wants it all to end. She wants her sons to stop fighting, for things to be good and happy. She laments that Polynices has married outside of the city, that she wasn't there for it. Her family is her primary concern. To cap off Jocasta's speech lamenting her family, her children, just wishing for it all to be good again, the chorus notes, quote, Giving birth holds a strange power over women, and all womankind is child-obsessed. A fascinating line, both making clear that women here are human, but also the power and complexity that comes with giving birth and being the matriarch of a family. Of course, it's problematic now, but when it comes to ancient Greece, it was pretty revelatory to give women that kind of power. Polynices' response to his mother is equally interesting. 
He mentions his fear in arriving there in Thebes, that he wasn't sure it was a good idea, that he was worried Ateocles would cause him harm, that it was Jocasta's reassurance that brought him there. He talks of the emotions he felt arriving back in his homeland after all that time, the tears that he shed in seeing the things from his childhood. Where Jocasta is strong and motherly, Polynices is vulnerable and sensitive. The emotions conveyed here are powerful, and Polynices clearly respects the fuck out of Jocasta. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Before long, Ateocles arrives. Just like Polynices, it's clear he's done this for Jocasta and Jocasta alone. She continues her attempts to broker a more permanent truce between her sons, reminding them to look each other in the eye, that they're brothers, and basically that if they actively listen to each other, they're more likely to find some common ground. In the end, though, they both direct their arguments to their mother quite explicitly, thus reminding us yet again the kind of power Jocasta holds here, even if, in this case, she'd much rather they talk to each other. Polynices speaks first, telling his version of events, which, when he finishes, he acknowledges is kind of the official truth of what happened. He and his brother had a deal. He would exile himself for a year, leave Ateocles to rule Thebes in peace, and after that year would return and take his turn ruling for another year. They'd sworn an oath before the gods, and Ateocles had broken it, refusing to give up the kingdom after his year was up. Polynices tries to emphasize he's being reasonable. He says all he wants is his turn and he'll call off the siege on Thebes if Ateocles just agrees. Basically, there doesn't have to be a war, just hold up your side of the bargain, the oath we swore, and we can remain at peace. 
Eteocles counters, saying that he'd be a coward to give up what he has in return for something so much less. And worse, if he gave it all up because Polynices brought Argives to wage a war on Thebes, he would look even less powerful. He doesn't have an argument for how they got to this point, beyond saying he just doesn't want to give up a good thing. He does say, though, that he could agree to let Polynices stay in Thebes in peace under certain terms, those terms being he's not ruling, but that he won't be giving up his rule. Nope. War it is, he adds. In essence, he finishes by saying, let's get this thing going. Not to lay judgment, but also definitely to lay judgment, even though Polynices is technically the aggressor here, having brought troops to Thebes, he's far more reasonable in these speeches than his brother, and essentially does seem to be just trying to get what is owed to him, what they swore an oath for. I mean, he's still wrong to wage war against his own city, but I can see where he's coming from. This seems to be a divergence from Aeschylus's more famous telling of the story, The Seven Against Thebes, where Eteocles is the star of the show. I truly wish that I could quote all of Jocasta's dialogue to you all, but we'll have to settle for yet another badass line. Because Jocasta's response to Eteocles announcing that he won't agree to anything beyond the war between brothers, between Argives and Thebans, is to tell him, quote, Eteocles, my son, not everything in old age turns out worse, but life's experience has some things to say more soundly than youth. Essentially, I, your mother, am older and wiser, and you're being a little dink. She continues, trying to convince Eteocles of how wrong he is in this situation. He's acting as a tyrant, something the Greeks knew to be particularly awful. Tyranny is bad, but the English word means what it does because of how the Athenians felt about some of their early kings before their version of democracy. Jocasta simply points out what Eteocles has already said— how dangerous his actions are, and what they could mean for Thebes, for the Cadmians as a people. And referring to them as Cadmians here unites them, of course, to Cadmus, their founder, but it also emphasized that what could be wiped out by this war isn't necessarily the entire city of Thebes itself, but it is the Cadmians, the line of Cadmus, i.e. their family. She makes it as clear as possible, what if you lose? The Argives will come, they will enslave the Theban women who will be raped. I'm referring to two translations here. The Wyckoff translation says they'll be assaulted and ravished. The Lushnig uses the word rape explicitly. Both, though, make clear that Jocasta is making clear that these women would be sexually assaulted, and that that is one of the worst results that would come from this war. And we all know how rare it is that this fate for women in Greece is actually acknowledged for the tragedy and horror that it was. Jocasta doesn't stop at trying to convince Eteocles, though, because when that fails, she turns to Polynices and attempts to convince him not to continue the siege— what would you have to show for it? The ruin of your own city. How would you feel about that after? How would you feel setting up a monument to the event in returning to Mycenae and to your new wife? Jocasta finishes, quote, When two men confront each other in madness, the result is tragedy.
Eventually, Jocasta, realizing there's nothing more she can do now, re-enters the palace, leaving the stage. But not before the brothers have quite the back and forth over their anger, over Polynike's leaving right away because he wants to see his father and his sisters, and Antiochus refuses. Polynike's thanks Jocasta for her attempts, says goodbye to her in place of seeing his sisters. And just before she heads inside, Jocasta asks Antiochus if he won't even try to avoid the curse on his father's blood. To which he responds, quote, the whole house can go to hell. <laughs> if you're into reading Greek plays, this one is really quite something. Uh, a quick back and forth of single line dialogue in ancient Greek plays is called a stichomythia. And this that I sort of had to drill down into one small paragraph was a stunning one. Polynices promises violence in his anger that he is not to blame for any of it because he is the one being kept from his home by Ateocles. Euripides is making a statement here, though. Even Polynices, whose original argument against his situation is sound, Ateocles did renege on an oath, passes beyond the line of what's reasonable. If he were better than his brother, who's holding on to the kingdom, then he wouldn't choose to destroy it. Neither of them are in the right. Both are being spurred on by hubris and anger, disappointment and hurt. Both are unable to see through all of that and to the ultimate issue at stake. Their entire family line is at risk of being lost just because neither one of them will give in. Finally, Creon arrives to speak with Ateocles, with Polynices already having left. Creon is, as you might remember, Jocasta's brother, and therefore a powerful man in Thebes. He's there to tell Ateocles that they have a captive from the Argives who's told the Thebans just how prepared the Argive armies are, how their troops have the city's walls completely surrounded, all seven gates. To this, Ateocles announces that that means they must finally march against the Argives. But Creon, like Jocasta, uses his age to intimate that Ateocles doesn't know what he's talking about. They're not prepared, their army is much smaller, and, he says, Argos has a reputation. Argos, or Mycenae, which are used fairly interchangeably here and in most Greek drama, would be where a certain Agamemnon is from. Creon tries to convince Ateocles to come up with a strategy, not to just let loose their army against the Argives. Yet another indication that Ateocles doesn't totally know what he's getting himself into. He's prepared to just go for it, even though he acknowledges that they're very outmatched. Creon, though, points out that there are other options. They must come up with every other option before just letting loose, quote, every possible course before rushing into danger. This is when we learn that the Argives have seven specific men posted at each of the seven gates of Thebes, leaders of the companies of soldiers. Those seven make up an important part of Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes, but are less of a concern for Euripides. Euripides seems much more interested in examining the lives of the Thebans, their personalities, the good and the bad. Beyond Jocasta, everyone seems to be viewed fairly objectively. No one stands above as being smarter, more qualified, or more worthy of success. Jocasta, too, has her flaws, but she kind of rises above. 
To counter these seven Argives, Eteocles will choose seven Thebans to lead their troops at the gates. As he prepares to choose these men and position them at the gates, he prepares for battle himself, hoping it's his brother he'll meet on the battlefield and who he'll kill with his spear. Eteocles appears to not even realize what he's saying. He announces this before laying out what he hopes Creon will do if anything happens to him. Antigone may still marry your son, Hemon. He says, you'll take care of my mother as she's your own sister, he adds, and my father, well, he deserves what he has. Quote, he will kill us with his curses if he gets the chance. This curse is, of course, the death of his sons. Now all they need, Ateocles determines, is to speak with the seer, Tiresias. He tells Creon that he sent Creon's other son, Menechius, to bring Tiresias. But that Tiresias will only speak with Creon, as Ateocles has found fault in his prophecies in the past and has angered the prophet. He has his armor prepared before announcing, just as he prepares to leave for battle, that... Should Polynices fall in Thebes, he is not allowed to be buried as a Theban, not anywhere on Theban soil. That anyone who dares try to bury him on Theban soil should be put to death. Quote, even a member of the family. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. This was, of course, just part one of the Phoenician women, as I am entirely unable to cover plays in a single episode. I get far too caught up in the dialogue and who's on stage and who's saying what and how fascinating it all is. And as many of you know, I'm pretty obsessed with the Theban mythology. Cadmus and Harmonia are my favorite, and I've been attempting to write a novel about them for eternity. So I'm thrilled to be finally covering this story, and I do love Euripides. One note about Thebes and its mythology that I don't think I've ever mentioned on the podcast is there once existed an epic cycle of Thebes. That is, epic poems in the vein of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, but about the myths of Thebes. They were incredibly popular in antiquity, probably only outshone by the Iliad and the Odyssey. And they're lost. Yes, yet another example of what we're missing from the ancient world. Because they're lost, what we have of their story is plays like the Phoenician Women, Sophocles's Oedipus trilogy that wasn't ever performed as a trilogy, Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes, and Euripides's lost-slash-fragmentary play, Oedipus. It's the best way for us to piece together what would have existed in those epic poems about Thebes, and I like to imagine, though frankly I've never done any research to confirm or deny this, that the epic poems included the whole story of Cadmus, which we know not that much of, and I'm pretty sure they do cover it. Euripides actually has a lost play called Cadmus, which I imagine, again, would have been similar to this epic cycle. Also, for real, my heart aches at the idea that Euripides wrote a play about Cadmus, and we don't have it. And while I'm rambling... A fascinating thing about Greek plays, since we're in one, is that they didn't include stage directions. All of what we have is speculation, based on knowledge of Greek theatres and their stages and how the actor structure worked. Because as I've mentioned before, 
Greek tragedy, at least at this time, typically, if not completely always, it's kind of random, had only three speaking actors in each play. The protagonist, deuteragonist, and tritagonist. Actors would wear masks, and so they could play more than one role in order to work around this. But that meant that certain characters could never be on stage at the same time. Thus, translators can often make decisions about who could slash could not have been on stage at any one time based on their own speculation about which actor would play which character. I tell you all this because I'm an enormous dork and I find it to be one of the most fascinating things about Greek theater. It's a fun anecdote to have in your pocket at parties, whenever we have parties again. The masks they wore to convey their characters are also where the comedy and tragedy masks of theater now come from. They were quite the masks. Sometimes they even had mouths that would serve to project the voices further into the theater because they were like big and wide. Anyway, deep rambling now. Greek theater is very cool. Euripides is amazing. This month's series of episode is thrilling me to no end. Thank you all so much. Consider a rating and review. If you don't like this podcast or me, don't say anything at all. And generally just thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. I am Liv and I love this shit. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great tasting, all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com.